I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Apparently, everybody seems to be in need of ghosts, even scary ghosts. Well, how, how do I even know this? Because the concept of a spirit haunting us from some unseen realm is a concept that goes back to prehistory. We don't want ghosts around just for the sake of entertainment in some spook alley or in a theme park haunted house. There is something more compelling, more meaningful for us humans. Now, listen here. I am no psychologist, not an anthropologist. I just think this is fair to say that having ghosts around might be better for us than if we were to just flat out dispense with them and deny them, kill them off, forget them, and move into some brave new world entirely lacking ghosts. We want them, and we like them. Mark Hartsman is a leading contemporary investigator into stories and circumstances of the bizarre. He loves exploring oddities and weird things, including ghost stories. He's author of The Big Book of Mars, The Embalmed Head of Oliver Cromwell, and pertinent to our conversation today, the book titled Chasing Ghosts, A Tour of Our Fascination with Spirits and the Supernatural. It's a pleasure to have him with us. Mark Hartsman, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, just for fun, let me give you a choice to make about the course of our conversation today. Would you like to talk about things that can be explained or things that cannot be explained? <laughs> you know, I kind of like talking about both. I find, I find them both uh, fascinating. I love that there are things that can be explained, but they don't explain everything. And the fact that there's still so many things that are unexplained to me just really keeps the mystery and wonder alive. So I, I love that aspect of it. Like I love that science has found ways to explain what might be responsible for what seems like a paranormal experience, but not able to explain everything. It's kind of a zone of, uh, in a way, if all the questions were answered, what would be left to do, you know? Yeah, exactly. I wonder if our behavior of believing in ghosts or relishing the stories about them, uh, you know, we could talk about seances in the era of spiritualism, or you could go back to Shakespeare and talk about examples there. Or how, how far back have you been able to take this in terms of finding evidence that we humans are a bit obsessed by this? Well, I think like you mentioned in, in your intro, we've been obsessed, I think, as long as we've, we've been around. I think it's just because, you know, the question of is there anything after death is an age-old question that, that humans have always wondered across cultures um, all over the planet. And I love the fact that different cultures have, you know, similar beliefs in the matter. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's just this idea of, you know, there's hope and there's a desire for there to be some kind of afterlife. And so everyone has interesting thoughts on what that might be. And ghosts are certainly something that, you know, if you, if you see one, um, to me, it seems like that would be great news to know that maybe there's an answer to that question that you can feel confident about. But I do get a lot into spiritualism, Victorian era spiritualism. I, I kind of especially love that era just because there were so many interesting characters and thoughts and beliefs going on around that time. Well, I do want to talk about the Victorian era and, and spiritualism. Before we do, though, how important is it to you in, in your mind that there's a cross-cultural comparison that can be made where this is, seems to be universal, I mean, I think it's, it really speaks to the idea that there really might be something to it. You know, the fact that you have, you know, ancient Egyptians certainly had a, a large culture built around life after death. You know, the, the Book of the Dead, of course, you know, the, the wealthy would be buried within their tombs and they'd have the scrolls of the Book of the Dead buried with them. And they would have basically a guidebook to how to get through the underworld, you know, the different trials and tribulations of this, this pathway to, you know, an eternity of, of peace. It was like a whole, you know, adventure. Then you have the Aztec culture, which also had a very similar journey through the inner world to get to their eternal uh, paradise. And very similar in lots of ways, but again, two cultures that did not cross paths. You know, you didn't have them connecting in any way um, back then. So I, I love the fact that there's all these similar. Same thing with uh, other cultures as well, like in Asia, you have just kind of spanning through India, China, Japan, you know, the idea of hungry ghosts and the different ways that, uh, that they were coming back and what that represented. So I think it's really fascinating that you have similarities and that it goes all the way back. It's, not, it's certainly not new. And even though we have technology and science and all these things, it's, none of that has stopped us from seeing ghosts. You know, yes, people can maybe explain some of them, but it's not like the ghosts have gone away. Well, what exactly is a hungry ghost in the Asian tradition? 
Um, just, you know, they, they vary a little bit, but a ghost might come back and in, in some cases it might have like a, you know, a, like a needle neck that would be hard for food to go down, but a large hungry stomach that might wander around looking for food, you know, maybe because of the way it lived in its life, it, came, it was forced to come back and kind of suffer as a, a very hungry ghost. There's different variations on the theme, but they're all kind of in that realm of how a ghost might come back and, and be suffering in some way for the life that it led. Now, there is a, an issue that you address in the book uh, quite early on, actually, where you, you kind of lead us into a consideration of the function in society of having certain people kind of controlling the levers of, of what ghosts are and what they're doing. And they're the, the, well, by the time of you get to the Victorian times, we even use the word medium. But even before that, if you go back to the shamans in, in indigenous cultures, they're, they're the go-between. And there's power that comes with that in society. Yeah, very much so. They were the go-between. You know, they would deliver the messages from, from the spirits, from the ghosts. They might also lead uh, the ghosts to the afterlife, you know, acting as a psychopomp, so that you weren't a lost soul on Earth, that you could find your way to the spirit world. What's that word you just used? Psychopomp? The psychopomp, yeah, which is the same kind of idea that, um, that Karen was in Greek mythology, you know, across the river Styx, a guide to the underworld so to speak, so they would help the dead find their way. And, sh- and shamans would act that way as well. But yeah, they, they would deliver the messages, and so they could kind of control a culture, a society, by delivering information. This is what we're supposed to do, so say the spirits. You know what I mean? Like they had, they had that kind of authority, and they could really sort of uh, decide you know, the way that people were going to live based on their word. And if you didn't listen to them, then bad things could happen to you. Um, you know, they might make predictions, and they could be wrong on some of these predictions. But uh, eventually, you know, if you if you turned against the, sh- the shamans, they could certainly um, cause you some trouble. Yeah, and and I, I would imagine that us uh, for for us moderns to reflect on that, it just seems like well, here's somebody in a position of power over others in society, and that there's all, that's rife with potential for abuse. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was about control. Okay, if we're going to talk about uh, a medium and if they had them in ancient times in in, uh, various societies around the world, let's jump right to the Victorian period. And I have no idea why an obsession with the other world would have uh, kind of burgeoned during this time period. Do you? Well, I think that around this time, I mean, you just had a a lot of things going on, like lots lots of new inventions. You know, here in America, you had people starting to head out west a bit of a religious, uh, you know, awakening in Western New York as people from the East were starting to make their way out West, younger people kind of leaving old Orthodox thoughts behind. So I think, you know, you had Mormonism starting around that time. I mean, you just had different religions sprouting up. So you had different things happening, different thoughts and, and beliefs. Um, and then in terms of technologies, you know, this is, this is all like mid 1800s. So as, as the years went on, you start to get into new things like photography, telephone, radio, everything is kind of becoming new and magical in some way. And so the idea that maybe communication with the dead is something that could be quite enticing. And I think this is also kind of sprouting from different uh, Indian cultures that were also around that territory that had been doing these things through their culture. Their shamans and shaking tent ceremonies, which were the same kind of thing where a shaman would go into a tent and have a ceremony and come out with information. These things were happening around that Western New York region there, Canada. So, yeah, I think that people were just sort of ripe for something new, you know. So when modern spiritualism kicked off in 1848 in Hinesville, New York, in western New York, with these two young girls, Kate and Maggie Fox, who were like 9 and 11 years old at this time, people were just ready to believe. You know, I know it seems like really bizarre and crazy now to think about that, but these two young girls just set off this complete movement that spread to millions of people across America and overseas in no time. There was a receptive audience there. The time was right. And the story of the Fox sisters is really interesting because, as I understand it, you say that um, even once their cover was kind of blown, people wouldn't stop believing in what they were up to. Yeah. I mean, like I said, they started when they were young girls with knockings and rappings that they said was a spirit in their house. Their parents believed them. They were literally an overnight sensation. Hundreds of people flocked to the house the next day to witness these spirit communications. 
they would ask it questions and they would basically go through the alphabet and whenever a knocking happened, they'd stop at that letter and they'd start to spell the word. So it was probably a tedious process, but you know, they can be patient when you're talking to the dead for the first time ever. <laughs> so they got a lot of information about this man who apparently was murdered in their basement and buried there. His name was Mr. Splitfoot. Their older sister who lived in Rochester, she was about 20 years older and she heard what was going on and she came over, she recognized an opportunity to make a lot of money, basically a whole new career that she as a woman and her sisters as women could have. Because at that time, of course, their opportunities were pretty limited. But here was like this powerful new position where you were a communicator with the dead and this was like a head of a religion, basically. You know, you had power and authority and who was to say anything against what you had to say at that point? So they did really well. And again, people were interested and wanted to listen. And even when they were naysayers, the skeptics and doctors who suggested what they were doing, no one wanted to hear from it. Um, and as the years went on, of course, everything spread. And when they finally came clean, it was 40 years later in 1888, and they were at a spiritualist convention in New York City. And you know, Maggie said, well, this is all I've been doing. And she gave a demonstration on the stage, and no one wanted to believe it then. The ship had sailed. You know, they thought, now you're just taking money to speak as a, an anti-spiritualist. <laughs> you're trying to cash in on the other direction now. So it didn't work. They tried, and the confession failed. I'm wondering if it would be helpful here to talk about a very interesting figure from Europe, Emanuel Swedenborg, and, and how he figures into kind of priming the pump for, for this, uh, not just at home where he was, but here in America. Emanuel Swedenborg was a really interesting character. You know, this was a, a guy who was pretty brilliant the first half of his life. He was, you know, a scientist who, you know, worked in all, dabbled in all kinds of sciences and uncovered a lot of interesting uh, information and things that kind of paved the way for future discoveries and inventions. So really smart guy. And then he gets to his, his around his mid-50s. And as opposed to, you know, mastering the natural world, which he felt like he'd done, he switched to, I guess, the supernatural or the more spiritual world and just completely switched gears and began exploring the spiritual. And his, his spirit would, you know, he'd go into, I, I guess you might call it a trance. Um, he would go into uh, a position where his spirit would travel. And he claimed, you know, he wrote many books. He said that his spirit had traveled to all nine planets. He met everyone there. He met the, you know, met the Martians and found out that they were very pious people, believed in God. The Venusians were apparently a bunch of uh, savages. <laughs> so, you know, he had full descriptions of all the different people in our solar system. And then he went beyond the solar system to heaven and described what heaven was like and how, the, how it worked there. That basically you had this sort of waiting room and you could choose which direction you wanted to go towards a life of good in heaven or kind of back to the, the poor life that maybe you had lived with, with your friends who were you know, I guess more on the, the the bad side, and you could continue living that way and just continue to suffer as you had in life. So you kind of had a choice. But it was an interesting picture that he painted. His writings, and he wrote much on this, gained a huge following and it became, basically became the basis of a new religion, Sweden, Swedenborgianism. And from there, you had more people going in. Yeah, I guess like you said, he kind of primed the pump for more people to feel that there was something more in a spiritual um, sort of way. So by the time you get to the mid-1800s, before, before the Fox sisters, you have Andrew Jackson Davis, who was a, who's known as a Poughkeepsie seer in Poughkeepsie, New York, who had a lot of psychic abilities and was you know, having visions of what he called Summerland, which was basically his vision of heaven. And he was apparently, he must have read Swedenborg, but kept it, no one knew this, but he said that he basically met Swedenborg on a sort of a little escape out to the Catskills overnight. Um, met Swedenborg in the spirit of Galen as well. And so he learned much about uh, medical practices from Galen and the spiritual practices from Swedenborg. But um, somewhere along the line, I suspect that he did some readings on his own, <laughs> but notes to people around him. But yeah, he became a, a pretty major figure in early spiritualism. And he's the one who actually predicted that the doors to the other side would be open very soon for communication with the dead on a more mass level. And that was right before the Fox sisters um, had their breakthrough. So he kind of, you know, Swedenborg kind of led up to uh, the Andrew Jackson Davises of the world that then spun into the Fox sisters. You know, the story you're telling kind of conveys to me 
that this interest in the supernatural and the convergence with people's religious hopes and dreams, there probably were no clear lines of distinction for people in those days where one would say, well, this is kind of more devotion and and worshipful practice, and this is more secular and of the occult. Were people kind of trying to divide yet, do you think? For spiritualists, I think they felt like this was the the true evolution of religion. So I think they would want other people to say, okay, if, if you, you know, if, if you are a religious person, then this is the next level for you, because now, you know, everything you believe about God, I mean, this is all great, right? But now you can also understand that we can communicate with those who've passed on or lost loved ones. And this is, to them, this was the biggest breakthrough in humanity. You can see why they would say that. But also just the idea of it, I, I mentioned the idea of hope at the beginning. I mean, to me, hope is sort of what religion is kind of built around anyway, right? So it kind of makes sense that it all sort of ties together and, and is interconnected. Who were the Davenport brothers? So the Davenports were two brothers who followed the Fox sisters. <laughs> they were just a few years after the Fox sisters became sensations. And they were from uh, Buffalo, New York, so same kind of region of the country. And they sort of really elevated the art a little bit. You know, as mediums went on, they began to find new ways of creating manifestations and having more interesting seances and, you know, showmanship around it. So what they did was they would have seances where they would be tied into their chairs. And they had learned from their father how to escape from knots, from rope ties. So they knew that they could free a limb or or more during uh, when the lights were out during a show. And they would have instruments around them and often painted with, with luminescent paint so they could glow in the dark. Um, but they'd have like banjos, guitars, horns, tambourines, all kinds of different instruments. And so once the lights went out and they could escape from the ropes, suddenly you would see these instruments flying around the room and playing, probably making just a lot of noise. Uh, some people would get hit in the head by a guitar, for example. And then when the lights would come on, you would see that they were still tied in their chairs just as they had been when the lights went out. So they could get back in their chairs and refasten themselves in these knots. So... This was sort of putting their skill to use. So they, again, they also became a sensation. They followed the Fox sisters' footsteps to go down to New York City to kind of make it big. And someone caught them uh, by turning a lantern on and saw them running around with the instruments in their hands. So they, they had to pack up and go home. And rather than, like, call the day, they just changed their act a bit, and they built what was called the uh, spirit cabinet. And the spirit cabinet was elevated off the ground by two sawhorses so you could see beneath it. It had three different sections, and each one with a a door that would close, so it was hidden. But on the two ends of the cabinet, each boy would sit inside. I say boy, but they did this their whole lives, so as they grew into men. And they would be tied in their chairs. And the middle section would have a window at the top of the door, so you could see just a little bit inside this cabinet. And the same thing would happen. The instruments would fly back and forth. You'd see them going by through the window, and you'd hear the crazy noise that was made. And volunteers could go tie them up. And, uh, and then when it was all over, they could open the doors and you'd see that they were still tied up. So somehow the music, the spirits came through when the doors closed and the lights went out and they had the show. And if someone happened to turn on a flashlight, it didn't matter because they were hidden by the cabinet. <laughs> so it worked really well for them. And they toured all across America and over Europe as well. And um, eventually, you know, uh, they were, there were those who kind of figured out what they were doing. Another magician figured it out and he began doing his own show, but... They had a lot of great success. Uh, pretty inventive. <laughs> you know, I, I would imagine that the success of this kind of a uh, venture is not just in uh, maybe selling tickets or whatever, however they made their money on this, but just the fact that it was causing such a commotion in society because society is not monolithically following a belief system. There's going to be the naysayers and the doubters, the skeptics, the people with the lanterns trying to expose them, and then the gullible segment of society, the people who really are hopeful and want to believe. There must have just been endless conversation about this in society. Yeah. I mean, I think there really was. And part of that's evidenced just by the fact that in doing my research, I find tons of tons of headlines about this stuff. You know, these are this was making news all the time, lots of articles which are a lot of fun, obviously, to find and to, you know, have his sources to write about. But you don't see, like, a lot of articles about that stuff these days, you know, (laughs) maybe occasionally or around Halloween time. But this was, like, constantly in the news between 
ghosts, belief in ghosts, uh, different ghost stories, spiritualists, what they were doing, the different performances. So, yeah, it was definitely something I think talked about a lot. And, of course, like you said, there were skeptics, but so many people did not want to listen to to the skeptics. Just like anything today, right? Everyone's got their own opinion. It's kind of hard to change someone else's opinion once they have it. I still want to hear about the Bell Witch of Tennessee, maybe a little bit about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his uh, passionate embrace of spiritualism. We're visiting with Mark Hartsman. He's author of Chasing Ghosts, A Tour of Our Fascination with Spirits and the Supernatural. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. A pleasure to have Mark Hartsman with us talking about his book, Chasing Ghosts, A Tour of Our Fascination with Spirits and the Supernatural. Just briefly, Mark, has our fascination with this stuff declined or abated significantly, or are we still just given to this? Oh, I think that, I mean, there's still so much fascination. I mean, turn on the TV, like the travel channels all day programming about ghost shows, you know, ghost hunters, ghost adventures. Uh, paranormal shows. I mean, there's there's no shortage of content around this topic. It's just a different format these days. That's all. Haunted houses, of course. Haunted places. Uh, tourism for places to go on ghost tours. Very popular, and I, I think helping places, you know, economically quite a bit. So, I think I think ghost is still quite a lucrative business. Yeah, but is it all in good sport, or are you inclined to say there are still some true believers here and there? Oh, I think there's still. Lots of true believers. In fact, I have a stat at the beginning of the book that, that says it's from 2019, a survey done, that 45% of Americans believe in ghosts. And for me, it was, it was pretty fascinating just in my research, just as I, aside from like the stories I'm researching for the book, as I'm talking to friends and coworkers about the project I'm working on, I have so many of them telling me like, you know, their own personal stories and, and being convinced that they're real. And they tell them to you, it's like, yeah, I don't, See that there's no like real logical explanation for what you experienced. Um, a lot of it happens with children um, at early ages that experience certain things. See people describe people that they've never seen that might be the deceased relative that they wouldn't have seen a picture of or would even know about. Lots of interesting stories like that come up. So I I, I believe that a lot of people still believe for sure. What is an adolescent? Um, how do I say this? A telekinetic temper tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, telekinetic temper tantrums of, this is basically what a, what a poltergeist might be. And I know, of course, the famous movie Poltergeist, a ghost, you know, making a ruckus around the house, right? Some, some kind of craziness going on. In fact, poltergeist means noisy ghost. But if you talk to a parapsychologist, what they'll tell you is it's, it's not so much a ghost as it is coming from within someone that's alive. And typically... Uh, that would be a teenager that's maybe going through puberty and has a lot of pent-up energy that's, that might just manifest itself in what they call recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. Um, so it's something like when, you're, when there's a lot of stress, a stress that could come through puberty, psychological stress, emotional stress, these kinds of things, that's how it might manifest itself in this psychokinesis. So that could cause furniture to move, um, noises to happen, voices. I mean, all these strange, really strange things. And there are hundreds of cases of these kinds of poltergeists over the centuries that have been documented. I, I get into a few of them in the book. <laughs> but but um, it's, it's really remarkable. I mean, I spoke with the uh, executive director of the, the Rhine Research Center. He's known for, you know, got start with um, the investigation of extrasensory perception, ESP, and they continue to study these kinds of different paranormal types of, of abilities. And, you know, he talked about several years ago, a young boy in North Carolina who would make electronic devices just go completely haywire whenever he was nearby. So a TV might go off, remotes might stop working, telephones would ring, um, printers would, would go nuts, computers would break down, just all sorts of crazy stuff would go on. And there was no explanation. They knew that he wasn't doing trickery to make these things happen because you'd see it. Like, how could he possibly be doing this? Smoke alarms would go off when he would walk by. Just weird stuff. And he would get in trouble at school because the teachers thought he was, you know, causing pranks. And he's like, I'm not. You know, just, I don't know what's going on. And so, um, so they called in, you know, the, the Rhine researchers to help. And uh, they considered it to be a poltergeist. And eventually we were able to talk to him and 
have him work on some, you know, mindfulness techniques, I think, to kind of maybe relax a bit, whatever this energy inside was or the stress. And eventually it came to a stop. Um, so that's one that was like, you know, a telekinetic temper tantrum in terms of things just kind of going crazy um, through, through psychokinesis. You know, if I were to believe you, <laughs> and I'm not going to even say if I do or don't. <laughs> you just told me that there's uh, researchers at a credible, reputable institution who have been involved in trying to either document these cases, uh, make long lists of them, gather data on this, uh, even oh, inter- sure. intervene. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Rhine Research Center has been around, um, I believe, since the 30s or early 40s. It was originally with Duke University. It might be separate now. What about the law? Uh, have ghosts ever been taken seriously in the eyes of the law? Yes, they, they have indeed. Um, in fact, I have, there's a great story I have in the book about the Greenbrier ghost of West Virginia, which was uh, probably the, the first case of a ghost actually affecting the law and like, you know, a testimony being taken seriously in court and helping to convict a murderer. So yeah, ghosts can be helpful. And, you know, the idea of a ghost coming back to, for revenge, you know, to uh, to point out a murder, you know, that someone who died is able to come back and point out that murder so the person doesn't get away with it. That's that's a theme, I think, that you see probably in a lot of, you know, movies, books, that sort of thing that that feels like a common ghost theme. And this was a case where it happened. So this, this happened in January of 1897. Um, again, this is in West Virginia. And a woman uh, named Zona Heaster Shoe, her husband, his nickname was Trout, Trout Shoe, had basically he, he murdered her. He had broken her neck, but he was able to hide this whole thing from the local doctor, you know, at the corner, and they were able to get her body buried. He just was feigning this horrible grief that, like, no, you can't do anything. Don't, don't inspect her. I'm grieving too much. I don't want you to touch her. Again, 18, late 1800s. <laughs> so things were a little different back then, small town. But um, Zona's mother, you know, she never believed that that her daughter had just died of a heart attack or whatever I think they said it was. So she eventually, she had these dreams one night where Zona had come back to her and given her a vision of what had actually happened, the real truth. And this happened, I think, four times and showed how her neck had been broken, her head rotated. And the mother took this news to the authorities and described everything that she saw from the ghost this is what happened to my daughter. You need to check out the body. So eventually the, um, the police listened, and they exhumed the body. And sure enough, it, the neck had been broken just as she described in four places, uh, again, exactly as the mother described it. And the husband was convicted of murder. Okay. I, uh, I don't know what to do next because <laughs> I hear a story <laughs> like that. And it, my, my, my gut feeling is I'm going to discount that. And yet, this is a matter of historical record. It's uh, documented. Yeah. (laughs) This happened. (laughs) Uh, I mentioned the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Is that an interesting witch? Yeah. So, well, the Bell Witch is kind of another poltergeist type of case, despite the the name witch. And this this one took place in Tennessee in 1817. And it was a farmhouse, um, you know, big farmland. The the father's name was John Bell, hence the, the Bell Witch. And he had a few kids, a couple of daughters. One of the daughters was a 14-year-old. So again, you know, you have your teenager around the years of puberty. And these phenomena just started kind of building up over, over you know, I guess weeks and months, starting off as just small sounds and, and whispers and knockings. And, and it eventually it built up to like where the ghost was, was really becoming vocal and was causing physical effects. People would look like they'd been slapped or scratched by this ghost. Things would move. The ghost would start spouting gossip about people in town, which is odd. <laughs> I think it was quoting the Bible. So all sorts of crazy things start going on around this town, and you know everyone's kind of wondering what's going on here. There's a, a famous story of Andrew Jackson before he was president, when he was still a general, had visited their home, and one of the Bell's sons had worked, had fought with him in the battle previously, so they they had known each other, and he'd heard about what was going on, and he wanted to see the ghost for himself. And so he came along with his entourage, and they had a dinner, and they're all talking, and, and that's all fine and everything. But eventually, Andrew Jackson was getting impatient and wanted to see the witch. You know, where's, where's the ghost? So um, one, of, one of his men who was with him 
had a gun and claimed that he was a witch tamer and he could shoot the shoot the ghost and you know make it go away. So he was kind of calling out the ghost and challenging it. And eventually the ghost shows up and grabs him from behind and causes him some pain. And the, the man shouts, boys, I am being stuck by a thousand pins. And then the ghost says, I'm in front of you, shoot. And then when he tries to shoot, his pistol doesn't fire and the man freaks out as the ghost kind of slaps his face. <laughs> the guy runs off and you know never came back. And Andrew Jackson loved it. He thought this was a great show. Um, so, again, very strange. How is this occurring? And we were saying before, it's just really a matter of record. So just for what it's worth, none of this was recorded until 30 years later. Yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe some exaggeration played its way. And one of the, the younger uh, children wrote it down as an adult later on. But eventually this story ends. What's especially unique about this story is it ends with the murder of John Bell. So the idea that the ghost actually killed the father. And so when you look back and you think like, okay, so this was all sort of emanating in some way from this, this um, 14-year-old girl, Betsy Bell. Why, why was this happening with her? You know, what was she going through? Were there things that happened when she was a child? Was her father abusing her in some way and the feelings were dormant in her system and the stress of it all manifested itself in this weird poltergeist sort of way, this you know, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis we talked about? Is that what happened? You know, we, we don't know for sure, but it is interesting that, that he did end up dying, uh, presumably from this ghost. Again, this is what the story says. It's legend, but it's, it's been written about since then, you know, since the, the mid-1800s at that point. I am more interested, frankly, in an educated, literate, skeptical public giving credence to these kinds of stories than I am about the gullible people who might just believe the latest conspiracy theory, you know? You do talk about people who it's tempting to say should have known better. And, and, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is one of those. You know, I, I just think somebody of his literary sensibilities, his keen, sophisticated way of looking at, at things, uh, how was he so given, in your view, to spiritualism? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely one of the more interesting characters. And you would think as the inventor of Sherlock Holmes, the world's greatest detective, he'd have some better detective skills of his own. But they, they seem to be a bit lackluster. So I think for Doyle, you know, he first went to a seance in 1880, and he was very impressed by it and thought this was something very unique and was very open-minded about it. And so he had an early interest, but it wasn't until his son had passed away in World War I, was, was killed in the, the First World War. His name was Kingsley, and through a medium, he believed he spoke to his son. So he was convinced he'd had this experience, and he was 100% sure that this was his son speaking to him. So I think that was a big part, that he had a personal experience that was, that was very personal, very emotional, that completely convinced him. And I think once he was convinced in that way, he knew that there were other frauds out there, but he was certain that even though you had lots of frauds, that you did have some genuine powers as well. And so he didn't want that to sway people. Like, don't worry about the frauds. There's, there's definitely something real happening here. I think on top of that, it goes back to what I said at, at the beginning of our conversation also. This is also just the time of, of all these miraculous wonders happening in society. You know, early 1900s, again, you've got the telephone where voices are traveling invisibly from long distances. And that's very magical. Radio waves, also invisible waves where sounds are traveling, voices, music, the, the phonograph recording a voice. I mean, think of what that must have been like the very first time to experience something like that. So to suddenly think that maybe we can't communicate with the dead, it doesn't seem as far-fetched. On top of that, too, and this goes back to my previous book, The Big Book of Mars, this was the same time you had people like Nikola Tesla and Marconi and you know, leading astronomers at Harvard and other universities firmly believing that there was intelligent life on Mars and that we could be communicating with them or that they were communicating with us and we were not smart enough to receive their communications and finding ways to communicate with them. And this was also making big headlines. So we have all these new technologies. We're hoping to talk to Martians. So why not talk to the dead? <laughs> when you think about that way, maybe it wasn't so far-fetched. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that personal experience for Doyle really led him on that, that crusade and to really be the... Uh, an evangelist for spiritualism. Here's what I want to purchase next on Amazon if I ever get a chance. I want a spirit calm or possibly a God helmet. <laughs> so 
Yes, these are. I love these two. So the <laughs> the Spiritcom. I'll start there just to go chronologically. <laughs> the Spiritcom was a, an invention in the late late 70s, early 80s by a guy named George Meek, who had made a fortune in the air conditioning business, you know, decades earlier. And he he put his money into investing into you know the, you know uh, exploring the spiritual um, and trying to find a way to speak with the dead. So he hired a electronics whiz who's also a medium, and and this guy put together this this device that Meek was funding and claimed to have been able to record voices through it called this called the Spiritcom. They even contacted the, the voice of a physicist who had just died a few years earlier and got some further instructions from him on how to perfect the device. So when they got all these recordings of these voices, Meek goes to the National Press Club in D.C. and makes a big press announcement. He's got a booklet, and you can see a couple pages from the booklet in Chasing Ghosts. And he gave this out to everybody along with recordings. And the booklet was copyright-free, so everyone could go make their own Sparacom. And he was, again, absolutely convinced that this was the, the huge breakthrough for humanity and we had this evidence right here and wanted everybody to go write about and build their own Sparacoms. But, of course, people were a little skeptical of this one. This is, again, late 70s, early 80s. And the voices all sound like they were coming from electrolarynx. It turned out that William uh, O'Neill, the, the, uh, the electronics whiz who was p- putting this together, had an electrolarynx device. He also was known to have schizophrenia um, and may have, may have been making these recordings, who knows, without the intention of, of um, fooling anyone, but maybe this was just part of his mental condition, you know. Also was skilled in ventriloquism, which may have come in handy, and he also was in need of money, so he may have been happy to keep this thing going to, to keep the paychecks coming in. Meek never actually sat there with him during these experiments. So that was a, an attempt that um, unfortunately failed, <laughs> but, uh, but it had some hope, you know, there was some hope for a while. And then um, you mentioned the God Helmet which is really quite fascinating. This was another um, professor, you know, researcher named Michael Persinger, who in the mid-'80s, he was um, working in Canada at a university, and he built this helmet that he had uh, wires attached to, and they would send electromagnetic field pulses into your temporal lobes. And so he'd get volunteers, and he did this for years, he'd get volunteers to go into a room with complete sensory deprivation, so blindfold, no sound, complete darkness, put the helmet on. And as he dialed up or down those pulses to your temporal lobes, people would have different experiences. They would report back different things. So some people would say that they saw or experienced God, um, hence the name the God helmet. Some of them said they experienced extraterrestrials. And some of them thought they saw ghosts, which is really quite fascinating to think that these electromagnetic fields just around us could be affecting our brains in ways that we don't know. And so your brain has to make sense of it in some way. And so that's what it makes sense of that. Oh, I saw a ghost. Oh, I saw an alien. Um, and there's lots of cases where, and I, I document a few of these in the book where electromagnetic fields were found in places where people were believing that they had some sort of paranormal experience. And if you get them out of that place where it's happening, those experiences go away. Or if you, there's one example, just cause that, might sound too broad, but for example, in New York, an apartment where someone said that he was haunted, and it turned out that the, the guy and his girlfriend, the girl was experiencing nothing, the guy was experiencing a lot of different paranormal effects, and it was discovered that there was a lot of EMF right behind the wall on his side of the bed. They moved the bed to the other side of the room, and everything went away. So, again, it's, it's an example of science maybe explaining some of the effects, just how the brain works that we don't fully make sense of. Not to say that explains everything by any means. Not to right, say just because right. I can dial in pulses to your temporal lobes and you see something doesn't mean you can see it. You can't see it without. But it is, it is interesting to see that maybe that's why some people see what they see or think they you know, experience what they experience. Well, Mark, uh, with this volume titled Chasing Ghosts, you published something like this. It's out. You've done your work. Are you still chasing ghosts yourself? <laughs> Um, I mean, I've always liked this topic, so I'm still interested in, in what's going on. But I'm also working on a new book now, which is not far from this. <laughs> and we just kind of talked about it a little bit, which is more on uh, UFO lore and, and culture and um, exploring how that's sort of impacted culture quite a bit over the past century, but even uh, long before that as well. And just for somebody who may not have caught the beginning of our conversation, where do you, where do you situate yourself? in uh, you know, the spectrum of from one end to 
uh, a naysayer, the other being somebody who uh, is wholeheartedly uh, a believer in this. Are you are you in the middle? Are you closer to the right or the left of the spectrum? Do you is that a fair question? Even <laughs> no, it's a it's a good question. It's actually something I, I talk about in the book, and I, I would say I'm I'm kind of in the middle, but leaning more towards the idea that there is something out there. And despite um, the things we talked about, like the God helmet and EMF, those things right now, I still there's still so many stories out there that are really kind of hard to explain by by that kind of, uh, you know, science or, or those kinds of um, external factors. I also just think in general, you know, if, you, if you're saying like, do you believe or do you not believe, you're kind of have, you're, you're positioning yourself with two different choices, right? Like when you die, there's nothing, or when you die, there's something. And it goes back to hope, and I would rather hold on to some hope that maybe there's something. So I'd like to believe that maybe some of this stuff, there's some real, there really is something to some of it at least. Um, I think that's a much nicer way to go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a happier direction, I think, for me. Mark, a pleasure to have a chance to visit with you. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Mark Hartsman is an expert on the bizarre, and he's author of Chasing Ghosts, a tour of our fascination with spirits and the supernatural. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. For most people, ghost stories are a matter of fun. For Halloween and late-night sleepovers for kids. But a few generations back, some of the brightest minds took seances and spiritualism very seriously. Even many mainstream scientists in the Victorian age regularly considered the supernatural in their scientific inquiries. We got the story from Richard Noakes, author of Physics and Psychics, The Occult and the Sciences in Modern Britain. We start here with the story of William Crookes, a British chemist who actually risked his career to pursue his research on spiritualism. He's a British chemist and conducts some of the most elaborate investigations into spiritualist mediums. And Crookes gets into so much trouble with this, although he maintains that his results of these experiments are quite robust, but the controversy about the whole affair is just too much for his own for, for him to bear because he's such a professional careerist. He wants to preserve his professional integrity. He wants to build up his reputation. So what he does from about 1875 onwards is simply not to, to mention it again in public. And but we know from private correspondence that he still sticks to his, to his guns. And that kind of strategy of keeping it private, but maintaining one's belief or sticking to one's evidence about it, is very common. How did people in the day separate religious experience from these practices that now would be deemed uh, occultish uh, experiences or uh, you know, spiritualism, mesmerism, that, that don't necessarily get lumped into the category of religion? For many Victorians, Spiritualism was a problem because it purported to be both a science and a religion and was both, uh, you could call it abstract, but also very material. It was a kind of way to achieve spiritual goals, but using experience of the senses. So it was very much about looking, seeing, touching, as I'm sure your grandmother would have vouched. But for many Orthodox Christians, this made spirituality quite vulgar. This was not spiritual at all. It was actually quite vulgar. And if any of your listeners have ever seen pictures of ectoplasm, which is a kind of uh, bodily extrusion, um, um, and it was celebrated in, the, in films like Ghost, Ghostbusters, it doesn't look very spiritual at all. And many Victorians thought spiritualism, with all of its kind of telekinesis and uh, movement of objects and ectoplasm, it's not very spiritual at all, is it? It's actually materialism. Now, having said that, there were plenty of other Victorians who were so disenchanted by Orthodox Christianity and the, the, the need to appeal to a priest and so on. They wanted an individual alternative form of spirituality. They wanted spirituality at home. They wanted spirituality to be more meaningful, more personal, more earthbound. Less institutional. Less institutional, less full of the rituals 
and doctrines that many of them found horrific, including things like hellfire and eternal damnation and the atonement. For many Christians, Victorian Christians, they wanted other aspects of Christianity, but without those institutions. They wanted something that was much more appealing. And for them, in, a, in an age of science when there was a big emphasis on experience and testing your, testing your senses, spiritualism seemed to fit both. It seemed to be a scientific way into an alternative spirituality. You know, it was about touching, measuring, uh, uh, judging. It was about doing it at home. And it didn't involve such terrible doctrines as eternal punishment, because for many spiritualists, heaven was a place to which everyone uh, went and experienced eternal progress. So there was none of that, that kind of orthodox Christian punishment. But the, uh, the orthodox Christians never really came to terms with it until even now, I think there are huge battles between, uh, between modern spiritualism and uh, orthodox Christian denominations around the world. Um, if I were to go back to the title of your book, just uh, uh, Physics and Psychics, yeah. uh, uh, to me it seems that if there, and if I bring in the, the believers in religion, uh, to me there's a, there's a common denominator here that in their own way everyone is seeking answers. You could be seeking God, you might be seeking truth, you might be seeking uh, laws of nature, you might be seeking joy, but everyone's looking and, uh, and you can hardly fault people for looking. You can't. I mean, um, this is one of those perspectives that's, that's been missing from the historical interpretations for years. When I started researching this, what I found striking and increasingly frustrating was that historians tended to assume that many Victorians who took all these things seriously were mistaken from the start. They were, uh, they were being judged for, for not knowing what we know about, you know, deception and fraudulence and powers of the mind. I think that uh, that tended to, to take the attention away from why so many Victorians did take these things seriously. If we are better historians, we want to try and understand people in their time. And I think that given what we know about the Victorians, it's actually surprising that not, that not more of them took these things seriously. Uh, than, than so many of them did, because they were surrounded by so many doubts and questions about, about what happens after we die, uh, what are the powers of the mind, uh, what's the nature of matter. Phenomena like mesmerism and telepathy and telekinesis seem really, really interesting, because they show the world in a new perspective and highlight possible answers to those questions about matter, spirit and, and mind. Given those contexts, it's not surprising they were so inquisitive, so inquiring. So you're absolutely right, Marcus. It seems that you are arguing that the attempt to embarrass the participants in these lines of inquiry was misguided, uh, maybe just unkind, because uh, in, in the interest of pursuing answers to legitimate questions, one has got to entertain a host of possibilities. Well, I think there's a lot to say. There's, there's a lot of truth in that, Marcus, because we tend to think that these criticisms of the scientists going into seances and so on were based on proof, were based on, de on, based on conclusive acts of debunking. But what you find is that these, uh, these apparently decisive proofs against the existence of phenomena had very little to do with, with experiments and had more to do with second-hand judgments based on, well, you know, the phenomena are vulgar, I don't like them, they infringe on my religious sensibilities. So what we find is, really surprisingly and frustratingly, is that the times when we expect science to be debunking and to be proving something absolutely right and wrong, it's not. The critics, the scientific critics, are actually resorting to some quite you know, uh, informal modes of put down and criticism when we expect them to be doing things like, you know, turning up to the seance and really testing what their colleagues have said. Turns out they don't turn up. Turns out <laughs> they can't be bothered to investigate. And that's what I find some of the time quite infuriating that the people I've worked on 
were not taken seriously and they weren't given a fair chance. They were just dismissed far too soon. They weren't given more time. And um, the people I work on constantly moaned about the need to take things slowly, that these phenomena are not going to be given to you on a silver platter. They're going to emerge slowly and you need to be patient. And in fact, they banged on about the need for patience and inquiry. Give it time. Study it carefully. Go back to it. Don't make rash assumptions. But at the same time, their critics are saying, come on, by now, you should, have, you should have proven it to be true. So there's a kind of impatience about these scientific critics as well. So did it all come you know, crashing down at some point? Did, was there a, a, a end? The, the heyday came to an end, and was it dramatic? It wasn't really. I think it's like so many episodes in the sciences. It's about, um, it sort of fades away and mainly because the key protagonists are die off or they, they withdraw. Um, they can't seem to uh, attract enough students or, or followers. So what happens is it, it gradually, it, it, when you take that process, uh, if that process carries on long enough, it, it just loses support. Um, but what's fascinating is the extent to which uh, colleagues of mine today in physics find what I've written so interesting because they think that they seem to be quite hopeful that there's been a modern revival in the way that physics can address questions about consciousness and paranormal phenomena. So they, they're very interested to see uh, how their ancestors, as it were, their professional ancestors, try to make a case for the study of psychic phenomena it's, it's fascinating because what I see from my perspective is a, a kind of similarity between the way physicists today both engage with and react to the study of the paranormal and what happened 100, 150 years ago. It is wonderful to see, it, to see it, but fascinating as well. Richard Noakes is the author of Physics and Psychics, The Occult and the Sciences in Modern Britain. More Halloween fun coming your way on Constant Wonder. We'll learn about the tiny town of Traverspine, Labrador, at the corner of Canada where the frozen north meets the wild Atlantic. If you were looking for Sasquatch, this might be just the place. And in the early 1900s, the hardy residents in this settlement thought they had found it. What really happened? We'll investigate next on Constant Wonder. Constant Wonder. 